Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Uh, I'm delighted to welcome Thomas Frank, author of the new book, Pity the Billionaire, back to Skylight Books. His prior titles, What's the Matter with Kansas, The Wrecking Crew, and One Market Under God, among others, are staples of our political studies section, and we're so happy he's returned to give us his insightful take on how our country's dire economic circumstances have unexpectedly brought a resurgence of conservatism. The San Francisco Chronicle called this book feisty and galvanizing, and author Bar Barbara Ehrenreich described its author as the sharpest, funniest, most intellectually voracious political commentator on the scene. Please help me give a warm welcome to Thomas Frank. Well, thank you. That is so nice of you. And it is, it is great to be back here at, uh, at Skylight. And I, I was just, we were just reminiscing upstairs about the, the first time I did an event here. Was, it was in 1997. And how old was I? How old would I have been in 1997? 32. No? 22? I don't know. I was a lot younger, and it was my it was my habit in those days. We had a <laughs> it was my my it was my my habit in those days to do the the reading with a forty ouncer in my hand the whole time, and the idea being to consume the entire thing by, <laughs> by the end of the event, and I, I just couldn't do it anymore. I'm just um. <laughs> Anyhow, those were the days, and uh, and I have to tell you, it's you know. Um, you, it is a wonderful thing that you have bookstores like this. Uh, there's a lot of places in America that don't anymore. You know, the independent bookstores are disappearing, and this is, you know, one of the one of the great, you know, really the greatest ones in America. And you should be, we should all uh, be appreciative that it's still here and doing as well as it is. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, what I came here to talk to you about tonight is, of course, this country that we're living in and this confused era of history that we're going through. A time when people are rising up against imaginary threats and rallying to economic theories that they understand only in the gauziest terms. I want to talk about a country where fears of a radical takeover have become epidemic, even though radicals themselves have long since ceased to play any role in the national life. A country where ideological nightmares conjured up by TV entertainers have come to seem more vivid and more compelling than the contents of the news pages. But that's, you know, liberal me talking. If you think about it from a different perspective, this is a miraculous time. It's another great awakening. It's a revival crusade in which the gospel is the old-time religion of the free market. 
This is the era of a grassroots rebellion and the incredible recovery of the conservative political movement from the gloomy depths of defeat. And yes, let's admit that there is something miraculous and something astonishing about all of this stuff. Think about it in these terms, the, the, ter the barest political facts, okay? This is the fourth successful conservative uprising in my lifetime. Each one of them, you know, all a puff with populist bluster, each one standing slightly rightward of its predecessor, and each one helping to compose another chapter in the historical period that I used to call the Great Backlash, and that if you read some of the other books on the shelves here, you'll find referred to as the Age of Reagan, or the Age of Greed, or the Conservative Ascendancy, or, you know, the neoliberal consensus, all of those terms. But so think about the situation that we're in this way, okay? It's now been 32 years years since the supply-side revolution conquered Washington, D.C., and since the free market faith became the dogma of the nation's ruling class, shared by large numbers of Democrats as well as Republicans, and since then we've lived through decades of deregulation, right, deunionization, privatization, free trade agreements. I mean, the free market ideal has been projected into every corner of the nation's life. Universities try to put themselves on a market-based footing these days. Hospitals do it also. Electric utilities. Uh, bookstores, not bookstores, bookstores have always been, but uh, uh, museums, right? Babysitters even. And, you know, everybody is, is, uh, is, is trying to be a market, you know, a, a, a market-based actor. The post office, the CIA, the U.S. Army, right? Fighting a war in Iraq with uh, contractors. And now, after this sort of thing has been going on for decades, we suddenly have a people's uprising demanding that we embrace the free market ideology, right? And this, only a short time after that self-same ideology led the world into the greatest economic catastrophe that any of us are likely to see. Yeah, amazing is right. Unlikely is also right. Preposterous would be even righter. Look, in 2008, the country's financial system, as several of you in this room know from intimate you know, experience with it, the country's financial system suffered an epic breakdown. Largely the result, as nearly every serious observer agrees, of the decades-long effort to roll back bank supervision and encourage financial experimentation. Remember all that stuff? And the banks stumble as we all know, quickly, you know, through the world, the world's economy into the worst recession we've seen since the 1930s. And yet, as I stand here tonight, the main political response to all of this has been, you know, a campaign to roll back regulation and look at the Republican candidates. Every single one of them is promising, you know, slash red tape, all this sort of thing, to strip government employees of the right to organize, not just in Wisconsin, but all over the, all over the country, and of course to clamp down on federal spending. So let us give the rebels their due. Let's acknowledge that the conservative comeback of the last few years has indeed been something unique in the history of American social movements. A mass conversion to free market theory as a response to hard times. Now, before the present economic slump, and it's still going on four years later, but before this economic slump, I had never heard 
of a recession's victims developing a wholesale taste for Chicago school economics or a you know, spontaneous hostility to the works of Franklin Roosevelt. Before this recession, people who had been cheated by bankers almost never you know, took that opportunity to demand that bankers be freed from red tape and the scrutiny of the law. It just never happened. Before 2009, the man in the breadline did not ordinarily weep for the man lounging on his yacht, but they do today. Now, the achievement of this thing is even more remarkable when you recall the prevailing opinion climate of 2008, after the disasters of the George W. Bush years had culminated in the catastrophe on Wall Street. The citizens of Beltway Consensus Land, which is where I live these days, where I pass my time. But back in Consensus Land, everyone basically agreed on the direction that the country was heading in. You know, they had seen this movie before, and they knew how it was supposed to go. The plates were shifting, conservatism's decades-long reign was supposed to be at an end, an era of liberal activism was at hand. This was all supposed to be the unambiguous mandate of history, remember? As unmistakable as the the gigantic crowds that gathered to hear Barack Obama speak in 2008 as he traveled the campaign trail. You could no more defy this historical plot line, the pundits thought, than you could write checks on an empty bank account. And the thinking behind all this was, I mean, straight up cause and effect stuff, right? The 2008 financial crisis had clearly discredited the conservative movement's signature ideas. Uh, scandal and incompetence had wrecked its ethical claims. And the movement's taste for strident rhetoric was supposed to be uh, repugnant to this new generation of post-partisan voters. Remember those guys? How they were coming to the post-partisan wave. They were coming to turn everything on its head. And besides, there was that obvious historical analogy that you encountered everywhere you went in the days of, of 2008. We had just been through a replay of the 1929 stock market crash, and now the pundit said the automatic left turn of 1932 was here with the part of Franklin Roosevelt played by the newly elected Barack Obama. Now for the Republican Party, of course, the pundits had a different script. And it went like this. The Republican Party had to moderate itself or else face a long period of irrelevance. And this was just across the board in Washington. Everyone agreed on this. And so what the polite thinking world expected from the leaders of the American right was repentance. Right? They wanted to hear these guys say they were sorry. They assumed that conservatives would be humbled by the disasters that had befallen their champion, George W. Bush, and that they would confess their errors and make haste for the political center. The world expected, in other words, the world expected contrition. And what we got, of course, was exactly the opposite, delivered on the point of a bayonet. Instead of complying with the new speed limit, the strategists of the right hit the gas. Instead of seeking accommodation, they went on a quest for ideological purity. And instead of elevating their remaining centrists to positions of power, they purged those guys. I mean, to the point today where Mitt Romney, who, do you remember this? In 2008, was running as the conservative alternative to John McCain. And today, uh-uh. <laughs> he's, he's nowhere near, you know, authentic enough. We'll get to that later. 
But um, actually, maybe we won't. But rather, the, the, the funniest thing about all this was watching these guys in action, and rather than acknowledging that they had enjoyed the 30 years you know, behind the, the wheel in Washington, they declared that they had never really got their turn at all. They had never really had their turn in the first place. But the true believers had never been in charge. The conservative ascendancy that those historians talk about never really existed. And all the journalistic work on the subject had been so much, you know, liberal propaganda. And therefore, most importantly, the disastrous events of 2008 shed no discredit on conservative ideas themselves, right? It wasn't their fault. So the solution wasn't to reconsider deregulation. It was to double down on it. It was to work even more energetically for the laissez-faire utopia. Now, um, if you, when you read Pity the Billionaire, you'll find that it is, it is uh, stuffed to the, you know, to, to, to the very, uh, what, what is, uh, well, I don't know. It, the book is filled with hilarious anecdotes about the conservative movement and me hanging around with Tea Party guys and me watching all of Glenn Beck's program, his entire televi televised oeuvre, you know, with the, with the pause button and like taking notes on it all. Anyhow, it's lots of fun. And like, <laughs> I, I did it so you don't have to, you know. Yeah. But that's what, you know, and it's a lot of fun to do that kind of thing. But, um, you know, and I've, I've been doing this for years poking holes uh, in things that conservatives say. And it's a blast, right? This is my career now. I mean, these guys blow off the facts when they feel like it. They steal symbols from the other side. And they do this just all the time nowadays. Uh, Glenn Beck, perfect example. Ayn Rand, we can go into that uh, later. But Ayn Rand does this all the time. She's doesn't, I shouldn't put that in the present tense. <laughs> she used to do that all the time. Uh, I mean, they, these guys, illustrate arguments on economics with fairy tales. And I'm not, that's meant literally. They actually do this. And it's more than one, I mean, this is common, right? I mean, the reasoning you hear on their favorite radio programs seems like something you'd hear from a brainwashing session at Lubyanka Prison or something like that. I mean, it's preposterous. It's contemptible. But you know what it's better than? It's better than nothing. Now let me remind you one more time, before we go on, of the original cataclysms that precipitated the Tea Party movement and that, you know, that, that sort of made the, the awful world that we're living in now. And what I'm referring to are the financial crisis and the bailouts. And these poison our every political moment to this day. And I want you to remember that the culprits uh, in these cataclysms, the people who wrecked our economy, were not punished for what they did. They were rewarded. Okay? And when I say this, I don't mean that they got away with a slap on the wrist. I mean they were laden down with billions and our blessings. And today they are rich in a way that you and I will never be able to understand. And all of this happened courtesy of our government the, uh, the, the, the officials of which have conducted themselves ever since as though nothing really untoward happened at all, right? Nothing to see here. Walk on. The bailout money will be recouped, they tell us. Nothing to worry about. The experts understand these things. 
Now, I tell you, you could not have contrived a scenario better calculated to destroy public faith in American institutions. I mean, what is the point of hard work, of scrapping for a few dollars more at some lousy hourly wage when dishonest financial ledger demand is so profitable? Why play by the rules when they obviously don't apply to everyone? When louts and bullies and crooks take home society's greatest rewards? Look, the bailouts created a perfect situation for populism in the old, you know, Jacksonian tradition, for old-fashioned calamity howlers, like we used to call them in Kansas, for Jeremiah's raging against the corrupt and the powerful. And one of our two political factions in this country took to this task immediately and with relish. Remember? The conservatives tossed inconvenient leaders overboard, like George W. Bush. He's not, he's not a real conservative. He's out. He's not part of our movement, right? Easy as that. They declared war on what they call the ruling class. This was their favorite book of 2010. Denunciation of the ruling class. Conservatives, right? They're the ones that are out there doing stuff like that. They assembled with megaphones out in the park and gave voice to the people's outrage, or seemed to anyways. But the other faction, the actual political descendants of Jackson and Truman and Roosevelt, pretty much failed to rise to the occasion. They didn't, they just never seemed to get it. They didn't understand that the circumstances of the moment called for something different. They could not embrace the requirements of 2008, 2009, even though responding to hard times was once their party's very reason for being. Go back to the bailouts for a second. Look, there were a hundred different ways that that situation could have been resolved, uh, could have been dealt with anyways. Each one of those ways less of an outrage than the way that was actually chosen by Bush and Hank Paulson, his Treasury Secretary. But upon taking office, what did Barack Obama do? Did he break with Hank Paulson's campaign? you know, or lay plans to somehow reduce the power of investment banking over American life? No. Instead, he took pains to let the world know that he embraced the Paulson strategy, right? Appointing Tim Geithner to be Treasury Secretary, that sort of thing. And each time that political adversity came in the succeeding years, the Obama team compromised always in the direction of Wall Street, as though that was the, that was the, uh, the power that needed to be mollified, right? That's who you had to make up with. They just did it again this week. The Jobs Act, Have they, has he signed that yet? I mean, any day now, right? This is they're actually deregulating Wall Street right now. They're overturning part of Sarbanes-Oxley. It's, uh, it's unbelievable, right? And who is, he going to, who is he going to please by doing that? You know, are, are Republicans going to vote for him for doing that? Is Wall Street going to, you know, give him campaign contributions? No, it's it's. Look, the folly of this strategy, I think, is obvious by now. I mean, it's obvious in an economic sense, right? It, the folly of it to us as citizens and as people who pay taxes and as people who work hard at a job. This is all of this has just been an obscenity. But that this might also lead the Democrats into electoral disaster probably never even occurred to the president's, you know, hard-nosed 
the school of Chicago tough guy political advisors, right? I mean, that never, they never even dreamed that might happen. After all, catering to Wall Street had brought only victories to Bill Clinton, right? Remember those days? Coming around to the way of the market had been regarded as high-minded stuff back in the 1990s. This is a statesmanlike acknowledgement of the obvious validity of conservative economic ideas. But I tell you, the advent of hard times made all of that reasoning as obsolete as the floppy disk. And although Democrats could not get it, the Great Recession has repolarized the political compass points. I mean, nothing is working the way it used to back in the good old 1990s. It's no longer about you know, R's and D's, red and blue. It is about special interests versus common interests. This was the moment for a second FDR, not Clinton too. I mean, the right got this. The right got this immediately. And they, you know, immediately generated the Tea Party movement, started putting out these manifestos, uh, you know, uh, cranking out these books. I mean, the country was demanding some kind of expression of their outrage, and the conservatives provided it. And they claimed to speak for a recession-battered people. And they adopted, as I describe in the book at great, great, great length, they deliberately adopted the tones and markings of traditional hard times movements. They mimicked a traditional hard times social protest movement. Indeed, by uh, April of last year, it was possible for National Review, you know, you remember Paul Ryan, the, the representative from Wisconsin who just endorsed Romney and basically delivered Wisconsin to Romney in the primary. They they, uh, they ran a picture of him on the cover of National Review with his face morphed into Franklin Roosevelt's, right? But the Democrats, uh, when I watch these wa the Washington Democrats in action, and I live among them, right? This is my friends, right? And when I watch them in action, my mind always goes back to the same image, you know, that sort of... Tr tragically incompetent British general staff in World War I, ordering up assault after gigantic assault, only to see their armies annihilated one after the other, right? Ypres, the Somme, Passchendaele, give me another million men, send them over there, right? But nothing stopped them and they kept at it, ordering up another round of the exact same goddamn thing, always playing by the gentlemanly rules of combat, never doing anything remotely clever, and always completely surprised when the other side introduced them to 20th century warfare in some brutal new way. And sometimes I wonder what things are going to look like when our new revitalized right actually gets the chance to do what they say they want to do with our country. I mean, maybe finally the, you know, what the pundits have been saying all these years will finally be proven true. And the rightward drift that we've been on ever since Richard Nixon will come to a stop all of its own. And the nation will finally reverse course by some, you know, occult force of history that none of us understand. But I think it's more likely that as the nation clambers further and further down into the sulfurous pit that they call utopia, that the thinking of our market-minded friends will continue to evolve. And before long, they will have discovered, what do you know, all these once uncontroversial arms of the state must be amputated immediately. What are interstate highways and national parks 
they will ask, but wasteful subsidies for leeches who ought to be paying their own way. What is disaster relief but a power grab by losers who can't get themselves out of the path of a hurricane? You know Social Security will go, of course, as the essential injustice of protecting the weak dawns on everybody. I mean, why should society pay for the retirement of someone who hasn't been all responsible and collected Krugerans like, <laughs> like every AM radio talker tells you you're supposed to be doing, right? Every problem that the editorialists fret about today will get worse, of course, inequality, global warming, financial bubbles, but it won't matter. As on America will go, chasing the only ideology that the country has left, down into the seething Arcadia of all against all. Thank you very much. That's right, I'm here to deliver sunshine. I'm your ray, <laughs> beautiful ray of sunshine on this gloomy Los Angeles day. Now, what can I, what, what would you like to know, sir? Uh, given that President Obama isn't stupid, <laughs> so you think. <laughs> no, he gets high, he, I'm sure he has a very high IQ, he's tested well, went to the best schools. I, I, yeah. Yeah, 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 that's right. He was a professor at the University of Chicago, let's not forget. Uh, and that's where I, I met him, uh, was in, when I you know, lived in Hyde Park and he was a... Hawaii. That's right. That's right. Childhood in Hawaii. <laughs> that's right. In 2008. That's right. But they're, I mean, they're, they're turning on him now. Uh, I just saw a hilarious, not hilarious, I mean, nothing is hilarious these days. When I say hilarious, I mean in the sense that like, you know, sadly ironic and shocking. But a story today about, you know, we've been waiting for... Um, for corporations and trade groups and stuff to start uh, putting together their own super PACs, and it's finally started. You know, this is not a, a candidate-based super PAC, but the banking industry, of course, is putting together a super PAC on the grounds that the politicians don't listen to them. <laughs> they need to have a louder voice in Washington. So they're going to put together their own, you know, I don't know how many billion dollars super PAC and really, you know, let the country have it. Why is he, why did he sign off on the Jobs Act? Why does he not get it? I don't think it's his, I don't think it's in his, uh, in his nature to get it. I don't think that's who he is. The, what Pity the Billionaire goes on about at great length, and I'll just give you the main argument here, is that, it, again, the, the key is, is populism, as it has been in you know, each of the, uh, well, three of the books that I've written now. Uh, in this case, market populism. But the moment demanded a form of populism, as I said in the talk. The right furnished it, as they always do. Johnny on the spot with something that looks like what you want. You know, the Tea Party movement was out there. Obama hadn't even been president for a month. And they're out there, you know, railing against bailouts and that sort of thing. And uh, why does he not get it? I don't think it's, like you say, he's a smart man. He's a very intelligent man. I've met him. I can vouch for that. I, I mean, he's, he's super intelligent. Democrats, generally speaking, don't get populism. You remember something called the Democratic Leadership Council? You probably don't know about them. They were big in Washington. Nobody knows about them outside the Beltway. But their entire reason for being was to, was to you know, 
denounce what they called populism. It was the worst thing in the world. This is what Democrats should never do. And that idea is, uh, is now, I mean, that's really universal among Washington Democrats. That's not, they really don't trust that kind of talk. And by the way, you'll also notice that while Obama is doing things like further deregulating the financial industry, he will not give organized labor the time of day. I mean, he helped them out in the uh, auto, by bailing out the auto industry, sure. But I mean, the one thing these guys wanted from him when he got into office, remember this? Card check. You know, or some watered-down version of card checks, something that would have made it easy to, easier to organize, something that you know, put some teeth into enforcement. You know, something. Nothing. They got zero. They got nothing. And you know, they get nothing. The bankers get everything. This is in, this is just who the Democrats are these days. Uh, let me take it one step further. The, one of the other things that you'll hear all the time when you live in D.C. And this annoys me because I'm sort of like the last, last New Dealer or something. I don't know. But uh, these guys, uh, they think that the real, the rightful constituency for the Democratic Party, and they always say this, is professionals. They always use that word, professionals. That's who we are. We're the party of professionals. And I'm always like, no, no. We're the party of, of the working class. We're the party of working people. That's who we are. No, no, no. We're the party of professionals. And so, you know, a guy like Barack Obama, that comes very naturally to him. He has an advanced degree. He lived in a neighborhood where everyone had an advanced degree. And by the way, Washington has very high concentration of people with advanced degrees. The neighborhood I lived in when we first moved there had more than more than 50% of the people in the neighborhood had PhDs. And this is not a college town. This is just, that's who they are. And they very naturally see themselves, have come to see themselves as the expression of that uh, class, of that particular group of people's you know, uh, way of looking at the world. And, uh, you know, that's to be encouraged to a certain degree. I want, uh, you know, I, that's great that professionals are coming around to the Democratic Party rather than the Republican. Don't I blab too much? I, it just goes on and on. And I'm so sorry. You have a good question back there. I can tell. So my, my question is, I mean, because I, I've thought that before as well, but then on, at the same time, when you, do you think that the Democratic Party has Aren't, I mean, you're right, we weren't there with it at the right moment, but there's also a major resources gap, right? I mean, these, I mean, we have to acknowledge, yeah. as much as we can be self-critical, they have more resources. Uh, absolutely. But, okay, very true, very true. Did you guys hear that? They have more resources. You know, we, ha our side, meaning liberals, <laughs> have, have a message. But they have more resources. You know, that's, that's totally true when you're talking about the, the right. The right is very well organized, has a lot of money, and very intelligent leadership in Washington, D.C. You know, you think about guys like Dick Army and Freedom Works and the Koch brothers. They're not dummies. I mean, these guys are very, very, very good at the game. They play it well. Grover Norquist, incredibly smart guy. Um, you know, <laughs> actually kind of a funny and amusing guy as well. You know what gets me about all this is that, and, and I'm, 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 this is not a direct answer to your question, but it's the best I can do. When I talk to my liberal friends, they see the political disputes as a kind of intellectual game, a sort of parlor game. Like, I can prove that's wrong. You give me, you know, X amount of time and I can prove that what you're saying is wrong. And I can make these guys, you know, uh, I can make the guy on Fox News look like a moron and everything. And I'm like, well, you know, that's great, but that doesn't really matter. What matters is you have to have a movement behind you and you have to rally those people and you have to speak to those people and then you get your stuff passed. And, you know, there was a time when the Democratic Party basically, you, you have two choices in America. You can be the party of money or you can be the party of 
what they used to say, the party of the people. That was an expression from a long time ago. Those are the two, if you have a two-party system, those are the two naturally occurring positions. What's really crazy is that both parties want to be the party of money right now, you know? And if that's the contest, Democrats are always going to lose. Uh, yeah, back there. Uh, back when you were both in Hyde Park and you, and you met Obama and he was teaching, when you first met him, or at any point, did you ever think he was left-leaning, or did you always see him like a corporatist middle of the road? No, I, I really did think. I thought he was a, a good liberal. They, this is Now, you got to remember something about Hyde Park. It's been depicted in the press as this kind of like a, a cesspool of Maoism or something, <laughs> something like that. And I will confess to you, I also know Bill Ayers, you know? But it, but that's not what Hyde Park is. It's, um, it's, it's, it's uh, scholarly liberals, and they generally, what they're known for doing is defying the Chicago machine. So they were always this big thorn in, in Daly's side, both both Daly Pear and Daly Sun, and um, they uh, and so there there was a group in Hyde Park. I forget what they were called, but they were the sort of standard bearers of independent Illinois liberalism. And they would always not only did they endorse Obama, it was enthusiastic. He was the greatest thing in the world. He was you know totally outside machine politics, uh, and in, by Chicago standards, he was. Perfect. That guy was like the best thing you'd ever seen. And uh, yeah, so I enthusiastically voted for him when, when, when I lived there. And yes, I did think he was a liberal. Yeah. Uh, a little bit of, uh, of uh, devil's advocate in this question, so apologize for that. That's okay. <laughs> I, I'm used to it, believe me. <laughs> I do all those talk radio shows, you know. <laughs> That's not that. uh, a, a couple of things. Uh, you talk about the, the right starting the fires of populism, and then you talk about them uh, benefiting from the populist movement that is there from the recession, which in some sort of technical sense, the right had a lot to do with, but it's a lot more, it's a lot bigger and more complicated issue that way back to neoclassical economics in every college class and all that math yes. modeling and so on, we'll get all that stuff. But, uh, uh, so maybe you can have it both ways in that case. But when it comes to Barack Obama, just I think just in the way, you know, knowing about his career, just the Harvard Law Review voting, the, the Illinois legislature, uh, and his short time in the Senate, that this was his modus operandi was to move to the center, move on the other side, communicate with them, and bring them over at least Good, some way to, to his point of view. So why he sh why we should think that he would be operating differently as president? I don't. I you know I don't. Think hey, that that's a good question. Nobody should be surprised. Uh, and then just uh, one other thing. Just this whole situation to put it in a bigger context. I mean, I sometimes think of the of the U.S. in the in the 1870s, uh, the, the 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 end of the the occupation of the South by federal troops. I mean, in a way, Obama and the Democrats are in a kind of a pinched position the same way the Republicans are mm, okay. that type. It's a big, you know, there's a big lost cause movement out there. There are a lot of people who are, who are uh, just not, you know, well, not I've got, yeah. and so on. And, and it's a, that the opposition in the, in the Senate particularly, but in the House now since the last election, it makes it very difficult, probably impossible, for Obama to win any of these things. 
legislatively. There are things he could do otherwise, but legislatively, okay. he can't. Okay, I get it, I get it. Okay, first of all, you know, did you all hear that? Okay, so first of all, that uh, that, uh, that that Obama is a, is an inveterate compromiser, and why did we expect anything different? And second of all, there's no way he can win now, um, you know, the, because obviously the Republicans have the, the way the Senate is structured. Okay, fair enough. He could have done whatever he wanted in 2009. The world was at that man's feet. You remember the crowds in Washington when he was inaugurated? The crowds on the campaign trail. The newspaper, the magazine covers that depicted him as the second coming of Franklin Roosevelt, and. Uh, I was, uh, and look, uh, I will say, um, I heard him say all that bipartisan stuff on the campaign trail. That's why he's famous in the in the 04, uh, uh, at the 04 convention, he gave that speech about there are no red states, there are no blue states, there are only the United States. And, and everybody else thought that was really, in, in Washington, thought that was really inspiring. And I was like, so what? This is like, this is big nothing. It's just empty rhetoric. It's like every politician says stuff like that. It means nothing. And so I mentally blew all that stuff off. All of his, all his bipartisan talk. And what, you know, assuming that it's every politician says that kind of thing. Of course, it's like the Pledge of Allegiance says stuff like that, you know? So what? The, uh, and when he got to Washington, I really did expect that he would uh, take that opportunity to be a Franklin Roosevelt style figure. But what turned out that the, the sort of the, the bits of populism that you heard from him in 2008 were the ornament and the window dressing and the and the essence was that bipartisanship what i thought was just ornament and you know froth that was his that's his core beliefs that's what he's about and uh, at every opportunity he that's what he tries for that's yeah uh, yes ma'am um Alan Caldicott one time called bill clinton a pathological liar and whenever i see clinton bush Obama on TV, I turn them all off because I feel Obama's the same way. I'm going to vote for a guy from Utah because I'm not because I'm in California and I don't have to vote for Obama. Who's from Utah? Hockey Anderson. Oh. He's on MSNBC. <laughs> I would vote. I I do not believe people who who live in states where they don't have to vote for Obama. I don't think they should because I think that this guy. That just a minute. I don't think Obama ever. I mean, I think he was brought up in in a in a in Hawaii. I think he had a good life. I don't think really he relates at all to people who don't. Uh -huh. I think the closest he comes to identifying with a working person is when he rolls up uh -huh. his is what way he rolls up his shirt. Yeah, you remember, you remember what Michael, the, the famous advice that one of the FEMA people gave to Michael Brown? It's like, the, you know, roll up the sleeves, make it look like, <laughs> make it look like you're working hard. This is what Hurricane Katrina was going on. Yes, sir, back there. Um, I want to take a hypothetical stab at the, the problem that you posed, that I think is the right problem. What's wrong? And I think the incredible power of the occupying movement uh, in synthesizing something that is missing from liberalism is what's changed the political debate so radically, which is what's missing from liberalism is a populist ideology. Mm -hmm. And that's what essentially FDR had at his back, which was, I'm sorry to say, but upset people, the Communist Party and a communist well, ideology no. that was worker-based, worker-based worldview as opposed to this professional kind of sort of you know, bought off kind of sort of nothing 
But there are other traditions. I mean, there, that's look. There were we all know that there were the communists had a big role in the 1930s. You know, bigger than we like to admit anymore. That's that's true. But there were other traditions in America. I mean, populism. Uh, you know, with the uppercase P was was it was the real deal. I mean, it was it was it was powerful stuff. And you come across its influence whenever you study the 1930s. You know, like Huey Long came from this deeply populist family, deeply populist part of Louisiana. It's every, everywhere you look in the in the history. Yeah, Eugene Debs, of course, the great man. But uh, uh, oh, wait, you're not going to put that on the on the on the TV, are you? No, <laughs> no, no, of course not. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, Bill O'Reilly won't let me on his show anymore if he hears I said something like that. Look, you're totally right about that. That it has. When I wrote, what's the matter with Kansas? Did y'all hear the question? It was like, what was, what's been missing from liberalism was the sort of populist ideology, discussion of economics, basically, and that the Occupy movement has brought that back in. When I wrote What's the Matter with Kansas, that was one of the things I was trying to do. Because we never, in those days, we were so caught up in the culture wars that we never stopped to think about, look, look what is happening, you know? Look what is happening to us in terms of how we, you know, make things and how, how we, you know, support ourselves. You know, the... the, the, the well, it's not Mar that Marx is banned. It's that entire way of thinking is banned. You know, the, the, that was what politics had been reduced to was these the sort of silly culture wars. And you weren't supposed to worry about the economy. You know, look at Wall Street. It's doing great. Um, I, I wanted to tell you guys about Ayn Rand. This is a bookstore. Yes, yes. Okay, ask me about Ayn Rand. You said Atlas Shrugged. Do you guys have that book here? It's something. It's something. Yeah, that's right. Well, yes, but it's interesting. It's not just that she called herself objectivism. The media calls it objectivism. There's this hilarious story. There's this hilarious story in Time Magazine, the cover of Time Magazine in 1999. It shows Alan Greenspan, Larry Summers, and and. Uh, Robert Rubin, and it says, <laughs> the committee to save the world. And, they, and do you remember this? They had just finished overturning Glass-Steagall or something like this, and they were bailing out, you know, I don't know who they were bailing out back then, but it was somebody. Right. And, <laughs> and they, they, uh, the, if you read the story, it goes on about uh, uh, Greenspan and his his relationship with Ayn Rand, and it's 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 one of these sort of slavish uh, stories that the media that's you know Time Magazine exists to produce, and um, but they refer to you know it was an objectivist theory because like it's so duh you know it's like of course it's true it's why do you think they call it objectivism? Okay, that's my joke. Um, that, but wait, wait, wait. So uh, Atlas Shrugged. Atlas Shrugged became you know the book was written. In, it's a 1,200-page novel written in uh, 1957 and uh, was a bestseller at the time, but then had this enormous resurgence in popularity in 2009 after the financial crisis. And, the, and uh, what drove it was this sort of fear that was sweeping the right, that we were entering this new era of, you know, th that Roosevelt really was back and the, the regulatory state was here and they were going to, you know, uh, do terrible things to uh, business owners or something like that. And so everybody was buying this book and saying, you know, this book is so uncanny, it's an amazing description of reality today. And so I had to go read it. And I read it. Uh, you know, I'd never read it. I'd never gone through that period when, when you know, a lot of people when they're in high school or college, they love Ayn Rand. And uh, I never went through that period. And so I, I read it. <laughs> 
<laughs> I read it. So I read it as an adult. As an adult, okay. And what the first? Okay, it's not the first line in the book. If somebody had a copy of the book, the first the, the line is omitted. But the response is that the, the the first line of the book describes a guy getting a dime out of his pocket to hand it to I think what she calls a bum, right? The bum has just asked him, "Brother, can you spare a dime?" Although she doesn't have that that phrase in there. The uh, the book and that that was the clue, and I got it immediately. The book is all of the sort of uh, uh, what would you say uh, the 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 um, the symbols and the uh, you know all the different uh, myths and everything of 1930s social realist literature stood on their head. The book is a story of a strike. It's a strike of the capitalist class. The billionaires go on strike. And you know the great, of course, that's what 30s literature is all about, right? It always ends with a strike. It ends with class consciousness. And this Atlas Shrugged is a story of class consciousness. One by one, there it is. One by, I'm not selling Ayn Rand's book tonight, though. One by, one, by one the billionaires, you know, the billionaires learn what their, where their class interests lie. And they learn that they have to get, you know, stand together in order to realize their true individualism or some, you know, bullshit like this. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, they go on strike. And you know, remember the story from the great story of literature of the 1930s is that we don't need the capitalist class. That was always the conclusion. The workers can run the machines by themselves. Who built America? Workers built America. In Atlas Shrugged, it works the exact opposite way. The, the owners go on strike and the workers are just, she describes them sitting there at the machines. They don't know how to run them. They're just like, they're so fucking dumb. You know, they're like, I'm sorry. Excuse me. Excuse me. I'm going to have to put a dollar in the, a dollar in the swear jar tonight. Excuse me. But they're sitting there at their machines. They don't know how to work anything because the great g capitalist geniuses have walked out, right? And left the world to its fate. And I was wondering, you know, as I went through the book, I started to um, recognize scenes from the 1930s. Like, here's a scene from a movie that I've seen, you know, where one of the best scenes in, in the book, best described scenes in the book, is where the two protagonists are in this fancy uh, locomotive hurtling down the tracks. And I've, it's from a movie in the, from the 30s. But it's all from 1930s sort of... Uh, I, anyhow, so as, as you'll see when you read Pity the Billionaire, I was finding where the, the sources for these things are. But the, the main one... I didn't realize until after I turned Pity the Billionaire in, and that is um, in 1937 and 38, the country went into a, a, a recession, a steep recession. It had been recovering from the Depression up till then, and then it fell off a cliff. And the uh, Roosevelt's advisors, we know now why that happened. It's because they, they, they basically uh, turned off the tap on federal spending and immediately plunged the economy back into recession. But the Roosevelt people couldn't admit that at the time, and so they were coming up with an alternate explanation for why this happened. And you know what they said? Capital, it's a capital strike. The, the businessmen of America are deliberately sabotaging the economy to make Franklin Roosevelt look bad. And I swear, this is, this is the, that's got to be the origins of Atlas Shrugged. She's, she's like, must have heard one of these guys giving a speech over the radio. And it's like, that's a great idea. So, but then fast forward to today, you know, John Boehner actually talks about this. It, well, histori let me, another step back. Historians, when they talk about this period in the 30s where the Roosevelt advisors were talking about a capital strike, historians generally say, well, that's a conspiracy theory. It's impossible. It didn't happen. There's no evidence for it. But today, uh, a lot of conservatives talk about it as though it did happen. And uh, John Boehner actually said that the reason, this is a couple months ago, the reason we're still in this, in this recession and it never seems to end and the unemployment is still so high, the reason is because, uh, how did he put it, um, job creators are on strike. 
And he used that exact phrase. Job creators are on strike. Why are they on strike? Because they're, you know, government is red tape. You know, you got to give them every last little item on their agenda. Ordinarily, when a Republican talks about strikes, the next thing to come out of his mouth is injunction, <laughs> you know, or National Guard. But no, in this case, he's like, we must capitulate. We must capitulate to their demands immediately. <laughs> okay. Talk about how she ends up on the Medicare government assistance. Ayn Rand? Ayn Rand, well, that's, see, I don't know a lot of facts about Ayn Rand's life. I was just reading the text. But uh, I, I understand that she did uh, take Social Security. She didn't, like, throw her Social Security checks in the trash. She cashed them. <laughs> yeah. Um, could you comment some on the use of psychology and technology um, in the mastery that the right wing has now over the population? I think about um, in the late in the 60s and the early 70s when there was such a popular uprising that Richard Nixon even had, he passed more uh, civic legislation, uh, you know, beneficial to yeah. people than Bill Clinton did. Because sure, he's the EPA, that was Nixon. In the street, he, he answered, you know, this uprising, but yeah. it seems to me like the people on the right, they, they really paid attention to what was going on, and so it, it goes further than that. I mean, you're talking about, about uh, Republicans delivering uh, what seem to be liberal uh, uh, reforms. It happens all the time. I'm doing a story for Harper's right now. Nobody remembers this period. Under uh, uh, George Bush Sr., well, you know they passed the Americans with Disabilities Act under George Bush Sr., but this one really blew my mind when I started looking into it. They sued the Ivy League schools for, uh, under antitrust, and they settled. They were price-fixing. Can you believe that? And it's like, and this, they, you know why they did it? Because tuition was out of control. Where's Obama on this? Right. You know? <laughs> where, well, where are the Democrats? Where's, where's my guys who used to enforce antitrust? Where, you know, used to, they used to have no trouble when, when, when prices were, were totally out of control and it was really obvious that, that uh, industry was acting as a cartel. Go on in there. Come on, do something about it. It was Republicans. Republicans did it. It, it, it's, but it's not like that anymore. I mean, that was a different era, and there was, a, there, you know, different Republicans. Yeah, very good. Okay, I, I should, we should wrap this up because I got, I want to sign books, and then we're going to the Dresden Room or something. I don't know. We're going to go find some beer somewhere. I don't know. Or we're, no, or we're, we're, well, I don't know what we're going to do. But yes, you've you've been waiting patiently. Um, you think that the uh, the culture war themes coming out of the Republican campaign is going to derail? The free market thing. I, I don't. The, the question was: uh, Is the are the culture wars going to come back, and are they going to derail the uh, the, the free market uh, ideology that's been working so well for them for the last couple of years? Uh, I, now that I, I think Santorum is pretty much out of the out of the out of the running now, and uh, they had a really ugly brush with the culture wars with the, over the contraception thing that I don't think they're anxious to repeat. That looked real, real, real bad. And you know the the, the fact of the matter, they'll bring the culture wars back when they're good and ready, and the, they'll do it when the, once the economy recovers. I mean, you can I can guarantee it. It's it's what you saw in the 20s and the 30s. Remember, the 20s were a great period for culture wars. All the fighting over evolution. Uh, God, what are some of the others? Oh, prohibition, of course. It was the, it was the great era of fundamentalism. What did you say? Yeah, suffrage. Well, that was yeah, uh, uh, yes, uh, exactly. And then when the depression came, these things were just you know dropped like a hot potato. Nobody wanted to argue about 
you know, evolution anymore. Prohibition was immediately repealed. You know, this kind of thing. They were just like, the culture wars just ended. They looked so ridiculous. And Hard Times has a way of doing that. It pushes the culture wars off the, you know, off the front pages, but they'll be back. As soon as, uh, as as it's you know feasible, um, and so uh, but Santorum was uh, I really enjoyed watching Santorum, uh, not just for the the, the culture war angle, which was fascinating, you know, he was selling copies of What's the Matter with Kansas like you wouldn't believe, you know, but <laughs> but it, not just for that, but because he also, when he tried to do the economic populism, he did it in a really interesting way. I don't know if you guys saw his speech after the Iowa caucuses, where it, it wasn't clear who had won, and so he went out to declare victory, and um, he gave a speech about his grandfather who immigrated from Italy and who was a coal miner in Pennsylvania and he gave a very moving account of all the indignities that the man suffered after he came here how he he lived in a he lived in a company town he was paid in scrip you know shopped at the company store all the, you know it was unsafe all of these things and you know the worst aspects of early 20th century you know industrial conditions and then he um, <laughs> And then he, he segues from that into how we have to cut red tape and let job creators do their thing. And it's like, you know, how, do the, how the hell are those two things Sorry, another quarter in the, in the swear jar. How are those things connected? And uh, in his mind, they are, though, they're, because they're both populist. They're both, he's, he's fighting for the little guy. And as he put it, for the bottom up rather than the top down. And top down means both those bosses who tr mistreated his grandfather and the bureaucrats who think they know what's best for you, right? And they always go back to this weird populist formulation, but it worked. The man was a live wire. I mean, he was really, I mean, compared to, come on, Mitt Romney? This guy is going to be the candidate just because he's got the money and everyone knows it. I mean, he's got nothing on the ball. I, I, um, I'll talk about him just a minute here because we are going to be hearing a lot about Mitt Romney as we go forward. But, you know, when I saw him speak about a year and a half, no, two years ago at CPAC, and I thought he was pretty good at the political game. You know, he's, he's, he's a good-looking man. He does a good Reagan impression. Uh, but, and that counts among Republicans. But he, um, he's... He just can't repress how proud he is of being rich, you know? He just can't keep it down. And it's always like, you know, uh, you know, no, you know, NASCAR, they love NASCAR, right? It's their, they always talk about it, and it's their way of connecting with the common man. And he's like, no, no, I don't, uh, don't follow the sport, but I know some guys who own it. <laughs> you know? He doesn't just, he, his wife doesn't just drive a Cadillac, she drives several Cadillacs. I mean, the guy just can't stop himself, you know? It's like, a form of Tourette's or something. He's you know, constantly boasting. And, and he can't do the populist thing. You know, he can't turn on the populism. And that's going to hurt him. And the only way he's going to beat Obama is with, is with a, uh, uh, what, there's an author in, a, in New, New York Magazine that called it the coming tsunami of slime. You know, the, just a constant barrage of, of ads. And uh, that's, that's how he's going to do it. Um, one last thing I'll say. Obama doesn't listen to people like me. We all know that. And what's really crazy is that the Republicans do. And I was reading that in that same New York Magazine article, they were describing Romney's 
strategy for beating Obama. And it was, and th what was really made it uncanny was at the moment that I read this article, I was also reading a big fat book called The Best and the Brightest. You remember this about the Vietnam War and how we got into Vietnam. And it is a, I mean, we were talking about earlier the Democrats and their, their, their love of experts and expertise. Always going back to experts and expertise when they have to explain something to the public, when they talk about themselves. Always, always, always. And experts and expertise are what got us into Vietnam. It really was like the, like the handful of the smartest guys in America dreamed that war up. You know, that was their baby. Like McGeorge Bundy, uh, what was his name, the Defense Department, McNamara, you know. Yeah, these these guys were that was their that was their thing. No, there were other smart people like James Galbraith who were you know like no no this is a bad idea, <laughs> don't do this war. But by and large, the people who were in charge then it was it was the folly of expertise is what it was hubris, and that has and so the Romney I'm reading this book and the and this is what Pity the Billionaire is largely about is the Democrats with their obsession with experts and expertise always failing to to to, to catch the populist moment always. Missing the tide, always missing the boat, and uh, and in you know doing these stupid things. Well, we can you'll see in the book, but um, so I'm reading this, you know, and this is what I talk about constantly. And I'm reading the the new magazine, in, the article in New York Magazine, and the, the Romney advisor is they're they're saying, well, what is your strategy for beating Obama? And he says, have you ever read The Best and the Brightest by David Halberstam? <laughs> and the, the guy's like, yeah. And he says, well. You just take that book and you cross out Vietnam and write in the economy. That's our strategy. <laughs> we turned it over to the best and the brightest and look what they did, you know? So the total anti-elite, you know, total anti-expertise, total uh, bureaucrat baiting, and that's what we have to look forward to, like six months of that. Thanks a lot for having me. I will uh, sign books, I guess. And I apologize for the blue language, especially to you, Maddie. I'm so sorry. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.